0: I hope you have your Bible with you, your copy of those ancient words, and will turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes where we've been studying here for a number of weeks. While you're turning there, I would make mention of something in our bulletin having to do with the covered dish lunch this coming Sunday, the 31st of July. This will be in honor of... uh, Rachel Dickens in her service to this church over the past four years plus Uh, she'll be taking a position at Wake Christian and uh, we want to have a party to tell her thank you and that we love her so uh, we hope you'll join us for that and if you're coming bring some food that's the definition of a covered dish lunch right well let me uh begin reading for us again in these these ancient words, um, we'll begin reading in chapter 7, and we're going to read all the way through chapter 8, like we did last week. That's two chapters. We'll cover two chapters next week, and then we'll slow down a bit. each of the commentaries that I've used to prepare these, when you get toward these latter chapters, there's a lot of repetition, and it's, it's difficult, really, to, to outline uh, a repeating theme as you see it over and over and again. Uh, but for th- for our time together, most of of our consideration will be given over to the first 13-14 verses of chapter 7, but we're going to read through chapter 8. Verse 1, Ecclesiastes 7, "...a good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning... Than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot... So is the laughter of fools, this is also vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, Where w- why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider "'God has made the one as well as the other "'so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. "'In my vain life I have seen everything. "'There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, "'and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. "'Be not overly righteous. "'Do not make yourself too wise. "'Why should you destroy yourself? "'Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool.' Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest your servant, or lest you hear your servant cursing you, Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness and folly, foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets, and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright... But they have sought out many schemes. Chapter 8. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, What are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. The wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will the wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Verse 10, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This is also vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. Fourteen, there is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said, this also is vanity, and I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun." How much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out, even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find out. This is God's Word, and let's pray and ask the Lord the two things we ask Him each time. Father in heaven, we ask that you help us understand what we've just read, that you would open it to us, that it makes sense. And then, Lord, we ask that you give us what's necessary to be obedient to the implications that fall from it. Lord, may we be closer to you, more like you, less like ourselves as a result of our time together. And we ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Um, in keeping with uh, my truth in preaching policy, I must warn you at the outset here that there is a good amount of uh, thinking involved in the first few minutes of this message. These are uh, sentences and concepts that need to be understood in order uh, to make sense of the conclusion. Some, some books, shows on TV, are put in this type of format. Um, it's kind of procedural, but think of it. If any of you remember that, uh, television show, it actually started in, uh, the sixties and seventies, but they had a a remake of it in the eighties Then they made movies about it later. Mission impossible. If you miss the first five minutes, just turn it off. You're lost. You don't know what's happening. You didn't see the message. And, and that's the way it was in, in the 80s when it came on again. And it came on Sunday nights. So if you went to church on Sunday night and your daddy was the pastor, you had to kind of run interference for him down the hallway to get into the car and half the time we'd, we'd get in just as it's beginning. We're standing there in our Sunday clothes watching the, the opening uh, sequence which involves some criminal act or sabotage or whatever. And then there's the intro, and then right after a few commercials, maybe you got enough time to change clothes. You better get back in there for the little box that he opens the lid, takes the CD out, and puts it in the slot. After he's put his thumb on there, you know, they were high-tech in the 80s. would read his thumbprint, and then it would say, this mission, if you choose to accept it, blah, 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 and then this message will self-destruct in five seconds, right? Well, Ecclesiastes isn't going to self-destruct in five seconds. But we're going to need to think through these propositional components because they will help make sense his conclusion that we read here at the end of chapter 8. We're not going to spend any time but in the first part of chapter 7. But this business about even the wise man may claim to know what's coming down the road, but he cannot. Wisdom is useful. It's better than other ways of navigating life, but it has its limits. So... After that break last week when we studied chapter 5, Solomon takes a break from bemoaning the existence of life under the sun to give us some, um, a warning, actually, about how we handle ourselves in the house of God. He gets back to those familiar themes of pursuing gain in this world and the vanity that results because this world wasn't meant for gain. It was meant as a gift. But if you look at it as gain... You're disappointed in the end when you have to leave your stack, when you die. Well, this just repeats and comes back again and again against a perpetually unsatisfied appetite. All this effort is seen as vanity and striving after the wind. And then, right before chapter 7, we actually discussed this last week, we read through it at least. Uh, he begins to set up his argument for the introduction of the poem. Chapter 7, uh, verse 10, whatever has come to be has already been named. This is chapter 6, verse 10. Uh, To give something a name is kind of to help it exist, isn't it? Um, Anybody got a fish tank? Do you name the fish? Uh, We're reading uh, Andrew Peterson. He's a recording artist. He writes. He's got fiction and nonfiction, but he's talking about... um, his place in in Tennessee and naming the chickens that they bought for eggs. But then they quit naming the chickens because it's harder to watch the fox drag them off. Uh, if you don't name them, it's easier to just say goodbye, right? Well, in this case, whatever has come has already been named, which is a way of saying God has set all this up. The naming gives its existence significance. And he goes on... And it is to know what man is and that he is not able to dispute with the one stronger than he. Um, and it is known what man is, that's, that's a way of saying we, we know who we are, we're creatures under the sun, God is the one who made us. And then this idea of he's not able to dispute with the one stronger than he, um, Hebrew into English a lot of times adds a a plurality where it's really a singularity. Uh, It means the stronger one, and the stronger one here is God. The idea is that God is the powerful creator of the universe. He he brought everything into being, and then He brought mankind into being, and then He named mankind uh, basically dustlings. You're dust. I'm God. Last week it was, he's in heaven and we're down here. This is quite a gulf between us. And there's no, there's no idea that we would ever contend with or dispute with the strong one as dustlings. Uh, that's the idea here. And, and it's, it's not the only place it's seen in Scripture. In Isaiah uh, 45, we've got woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots does the clay say to him who forms it what are you making no Uh, there's another line or your work has no handles i don't know what that means but i'm thinking if this is a representation of uh... you know human kind of like earthen pots i would prefer to have fewer handles that was a joke see you don't (laughs) laugh at the jokes i make that i mean to make but you laugh at the jokes that I don't mean to make are not funny. People have handles, don't they? Love handles? I should have said love handles. But do we look to our Creator and say, Why have you made these extra handles? We wouldn't do that. And then Paul in Romans 9. But you, oh man... Who are you to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So this is one of those those concepts that these things help us understand the next things. There's We're limited. We only have certain knowledge. We can't see down the road into the future. And we can't, argue with the Lord as to why He's kept that from us. It doesn't do us any good. So he goes on in that uh, verse, this would be verse 11 now, the more words, which would be talking back, disputing with the strong one, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? So he's saying it's not just silly, it's sad. Verse 12, for who knows what is good for man? While he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. Who is man to say? that I know what's best for myself you don't know what's coming so how do you know what's coming is good or bad you, you can't say that man can't say I know what's best for me and the implication is God who made us knows what's best for us so the idea heading into chapter 7 which is important to understanding chapter 7 and especially its conclusion here it is since humanity cannot know what is good for them They must accept submissively what God sends them. That would be wisdom. Now you can push back on what God sends you. You can say, I don't deserve this. But you're just multiplying vanity. Because it is what it is. And it ultimately comes from God. Very difficult pill to swallow if it's not favorable. So... It goes on, for who can tell what man will be after him under the sun? No one knows what tomorrow will bring. Will it be a day of prosperity? Will it be a day of adversity? Will there be happiness? Will there be sorrow? We can't call it. But Solomon is not a pessimist. As much as it sounds like he is, he's working on something and he has gone to the trouble to set up this desperate picture of ignorance and then offers wisdom to help you sort out what, in large part, is unsortable, up to a point. Uh, the sentence, or sequence, rather, of Proverbs, and that's what you're looking at in verse 1 through 13. It looks like poetry. It is poetry, but it's, it's in the form of, of, of a proverb. And there are nine separate times where the words good or more good is mentioned. Now, more good's in the Hebrew. When it goes to English, they use the word "better." It's like your mom would say, you can't use more good or gooder -er or more gooder -er," right? But it's saying that something is good, but it's more than just good. It's better than something else that's good. So we're going to look at a lot of betters. We read over a lot of betters. And these are ways to help us handle the unexpected nature of God's sovereignty under the sun. He's still in control, though it looks like a mess. So look at verse 1, chapter 7, a good name is better, there's there's your more more good, than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. All right, first sentence first or first line, Uh, you can buy precious ointment, Uh, costly perfume might be your, your translation here, you can't buy a good name. So, the thing of more value here is the good name. And it doesn't really make much sense to smell great and your reputation stinks. So, that, that's a good argument right out of the gate. But it's really to introduce the next line. Because where we would agree with the first one, we instinctively push back on the second. And the day of death is better than the day of birth? On what planet would that be true? I'm going to have a party the day I die, but uh, nothing on, no, no, no bubblegum cigars? Uh, what does he mean by this? We don't immediately understand why that would be. Uh, day of birth is supposed to be happy. The day of death is sad, if not tragic. Well, he adds a layer. Verse 2, it's better, more good to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind. means we're all going to die. And the living will lay it to heart. So its is it better, really, to go to a funeral than a party? Wedding reception? Uh, birthday gathering? Grand opening? Whatever you want to call it. Why is the preacher switching these things around? Because it can't be a mistake. He's saying something, but what is he saying? I think... Spurgeon had it said well. He says that the day of death, the funeral, is better than the day of birth, celebration, not because death is better than life, but because a coffin is a better teacher than a crib. Now that's a pearl right there for you. But it's not a fun one. We know we learn more and difficulty school of hard knocks adversity bumps in the road or what we climb on right so I can remember I'm sure you can too the first funeral you attended when I was little about the age of our youngest who's who's down the hall uh, I remember my my father lost his mother and his grandmother within a few weeks of one another he was raised by his grandmother uh, so these are the most important people other than my mother in his life. And within a few weeks, they're gone. And I, I just remember going to the house full of people and then going to the visitation. I remember weird things like there was this big, it wasn't a chair and it wasn't a couch, but you're supposed to sit on it and it was round, like 360 degrees worth of seating surface, but with this weird cushioned post in the middle, kind of shaped like a sombrero hat. And we just, we like played musical chair around it until we got caught. That's what I remember. What do you do as an eight, nine-year-old uh, when all the adults are are sad or not? This one's laughing, this one's crying. You're just trying to behave enough not to get in trouble. And then I remember not far from that, uh, mom There was this brother and sister that homeschooled with us in our home for months. Um, They were part of our church, and their mother had cancer and was dying. And these kids were our age. And and I remember it was weird, um, and the sister didn't talk much, and if she did, it was more likely to be in anger than anything else. And just trying with that little brain, I had to even you know risk the thinking of what if it was my mom instead of their mom and then that funeral and how it just didn't seem fair to me how does this work you know I'm a preacher's kid and we've got this book named the Bible and we sit down in Sunday school but would please somebody tell me how that how that's fair I don't remember sitting and learning in the house of mourning but I do think that that Stuff was formative in my life and the way I looked at things, even as a little kid um, we didn 't get to just get a babysitter and avoid all that. Mom and Dad had us look at it uh endure it. We got the speech in the car best behavior lightning will strike <laughs> you know but but we went through it and and then growing up, you add to those lists. You go to funerals of people that are close to you, not just close to someone who's close to you. Uh, I remember another situation with, with my wife, Corey, in D.C. We'd gone for one reason, but we decided to visit the Holocaust Museum. That's a funeral. And, and, and it'll teach you the horrors of the worst of life uh, in, in recent memory. But I remember there being busloads full of high schoolers who are laughing at things. And we're playing on their phones. And I don't know what's funny about the Holocaust, but I'm in my 30s. I'm a parent, and they're in high school. They haven't been through many classes in the house of mourning yet. They, they don't have the apparatus to make sense of them. So there's some some sorrow for that situation and the rude awakening that, that's coming, Right. But we have to admit, it is a profound classroom, this house of mourning. Uh, Look at the next verse. Sorrow is better than laughter. If that's on a quiz, does anybody say true? They all say that's false. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Really? Um, there is a little bit of definition that needs to be applied to this. Um, this is more like the laughter of chapter 2 rather than the laughter of what's meant for you as a gift by God to enjoy, uh, to eat and drink and enjoy w- one another. This is the uh, pay-for laughter that's mostly crude and what he had described as madness and of pleasure. That's the type of, of laughter that he says is is nowhere near as good as sorrow Um, this might help might get you closer but he's trying to describe a, a, a paradox of layered emotions that are positive and negative at the same time and it's hard for you to distinguish between the two you ever laugh and cry at the same time it's not it's not every day but it can happen. There can be complicated things that have both good and bad. Uh, Standing on a balcony looking over the Sea of Galilee one afternoon waiting on dinner, uh, a fellow came up and said, what are you thinking? I said, I'm thinking this is one of the best things I've ever laid my eyes on, but I want my wife to see it. I can't really enjoy it like I could if she was with me or the rest of my family. I hope to take them all back. Uh, there's times where you're traveling maybe. Some of you guys that do that and you find a really good meal and you're thinking more about who would get a kick out of it like you than to enjoy it yourself, right? You just name this stuff. You can can read a good book and and find yourself wanting to go hug your children and they're like, Daddy, what's wrong with you? I just read a really good book (laughs) and I need to hug you, right? So sometimes through the sorrow of something... And who that does not know Jesus knows what happens in a room like this with a casket right here where people are both cheerful and sorrowful at the same time. They've said goodbye, but they know where they are, so they've lost nothing because you can't lose something when you know where it is, where they are. How do we get this? But under the sun, most don't. They would say that's foolishness. So... There are other places in the Scriptures. There's no contradiction between sadness of face and gladness of heart. Matthew 5, Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. James tells us, Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. It's going to work out to your perfection. Uh, 2 Corinthians 6, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. So, yeah, this is, this is Christian stuff here in the kingdom of God. But then in verse 4, the preacher goes back to the house, or the two houses mentioned in verse 4. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. So the heart there refers to the center of the human being. This is your internal motivator. And when the road takes a turn and you're faced with something you didn't expect your heart will want to take you one of two places. And Solomon says one direction is wisdom and the other is folly. And it'd be a great place to ask so where do we go when things don't Pan out. Um, That's one of those things you probably would like to keep to yourself. But you've known this. you live life. You see that when some people have a bad day, they either go home and study and try to avoid what brought that bad day to pass. Or they go drink themselves to sleep. Or go find somebody that will listen. Or pay for a movie or whatever else. But please... Give me a distraction from this. I have to do it again in the morning. So, spare me. That's the house of mirth. Not the house of mourning. Um, Ever at a certain age wish you just didn't know what you knew? Um, My wife and I will be knocking on the door of 18 years worth of marriage. People that were married about the same time as us that we knew and grew up with, some of them are on their third. some of them are in trouble, some of them are alone it 's about the statistical s- chances of people that don 't have or believe this book and I remember one afternoon at the house with a couple we basically grew up with, and their kids are playing with our kids and the topic at the table has taken a turn and we're actually talking about stuff that we all know but haven't talked about heretofore and they've told us of plans to drop off the kids for 7 to 10 days and they've booked a cruise on the uh, the orders of some counselor who told them that would be a good way for them to rediscover themselves so they leave I send the kids to bed because it's late and uh, so let me get this straight. You're going to go buy clothes to the, for a ride on a boat. Eat food they don't ever eat. Who has lobster every day? Sit down with people they don't know, so they're certainly not bringing up what we just discussed. No help for them there. Um, in what way does a trip to the house of Mirth Help the sinking ship known as their marriage. How about a visit to the house of mourning? How, how, how about just to sit down and actually view the casket full of the contents of your foolishness that, that you've operated for the last decade on the notion that God sent this person to you to make you happy? There's that's nowhere in Scripture. In fact, you're going to help each other see your weaknesses if it works right. Uh, or maybe tour the uh, lost time with your children who now will have an uphill battle trying to picture in their mind a healthy relationship. Um, How about go back home and try to figure out how to just get up out of bed without a fight over who's supposed to make it up? Or uh, whose job it is to put the toilet paper back on the on the tube and which way it rolls down or whatever it is that people fight about the house of mourning can help you sort that stuff but it is hard and it's painful and it's shot through with all these surgeries that you're going to have to sign off on that you're going to let the doctor cut you open from the pages of scripture how about taking a trip to mourn your incessant This is all of us, folks. We've gone from the one situation to everyone that lives in this room. Our incessant addiction to changing or exchanging the gold God gives us in His Word and through each other for dirt. Uh, Just with the other things that we will put in place of what God has given us. He gave us each other. He gave us His Word but sometimes we think we know better than that. We're going to chase this, we're going to chase that. I could get into specifics and absolutely ruin this teachable moment Solomon's given us. So I'll let you fill in the blank of how we will take gold and trade it for dirt and then act like it should have made us happy. It never does. Um, let's keep moving because fortunately or fortunately he's not done for it is better for man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of the fools well there's a lot of songs at that house of mirth but there's a lot of rebuke in the house of mourning and sometimes the lessons from there feel very much like a rebuke the rebuke of the wise is constructive criticism its purpose is to correct a destructive pattern of behavior and save us from the repercussions. Um, this is Proverbs 12.1, same author we think. And I, I got to love the ESV here because it lets me say words that I was not allowed to when I was a child. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. That's a good use of that term. You're not supposed to call anybody stupid, unless you're Solomon and they're acting that way. And really, he's just saying, here's hypothetical, if uh, you hate to be told that you're wrong, if anybody brings up a blind spot and you just give them both barrels, you're stupid. Listen to them. Correct your, 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 your steps that you're supposed to guard from last week. A lot can be learned from the rebuke of the wise, but what can be learned from the song of fools? That's what Mom and Dad. You know, we grew up in a Christian home. You get a new CD, you have to turn it in for approval. And there are certain things that, uh, it, the, the, even my parents growing up in a Christian, it didn't have to be Christian music, but. If there wasn't something that passed the whatsoever things are true, lovely, you know, think on these things. And if it was just a bunch of foolishness, it got flunked. We we couldn't use it. And then I'd sit quietly in my daddy's Mustang and listen to the stuff he listened to in high school and try not to be judgmental. (laughs) But as we all say, and this comes up later. I just don't understand music today. The old stuff was the best stuff. Wait for that. He's going to hit it. The good old days. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, verse 6, so is the laughter of the fools. This is also vanity. So evidently thorns were easily ignited and quickly extinguishable fuel source in the ancient culture of Solomon's world. Uh, I I can... credit that we burned a bunch of uh, grapevines. we pulled out of the trees that try to twist them up these are the uh, good grapes grow in Carolina you know they they make all that stuff out of them but when the grapes are way up in a tree it's no good for you pull it all out and we burn them in burn barrels they burn hot and they burn fast but that's it if you really need BTUs you use oak or hickory or something that's what he's saying here um, the laughter, the song of fools is a sudden flame, fine display of sparks for sure accompanied by plenty of noise, but soon spent and quickly burn out. You may have a ball there and you may feel like you have friends, but you haven't learned a thing. And then, as if to cut his eyes in the other direction, Solomon takes a shot at the people who are supposed to be wise people. He says, you're not getting out of this unscathed. Surely oppression or extortion, verse 7, drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. So he's, he's just back to the idea of stacking up things, acquisition of stuff. It can be strong motivation such that smart people can stoop to the level of cheating, extortion, bribery. And better is the end of a thing than the beginning, is verse 8. Patience is better than pride. So trying to string these together, if you know anyone who's patient and can suspend judgment till the end of something, either a discussion or uh, a season or a building or, or whatever else, and then decide whether or not they like it, hang out with that person. That's so rare, especially these days. You can't even get a sentence out if someone sniffs that it's not the way they think it should be. Boom! That escalated quickly. We're in a big argument. I, what happened? Lunch with coworkers, and now we're all mad at each other. Who said what? Remember how it was back in COVID just trying to navigate and figure out okay, who's on which team? And then who's on the feeder team for that team? Uh, who's, who's the scouts for that team? I think I found a scout. I'm being you know, checked out here. Questions are coming. How do I answer? They're recording this. I'm exaggerating. That's the way it felt, wasn't it? How about suspending judgment? Waiting for the end of a thing. He says that's better. And then verse 9, Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges or lives in the heart of fools. Proverbs is full of this stuff. Sometimes I'd like to, uh, you know, sometimes in parody format, you may say, "Okay, this is a uh, celebrity death match, octagon style: two enter, one leaves." The Book of Proverbs versus Twitter. Let's see who can resist tweeting or retweeting. She's got to be first. Because if you're the first, then you're top of the list. You get to be not the smart person who said it, but the smart person who agrees. Or not the dumb person that posts it, but the smart one who says it's dumb. And then you've got to sit all afternoon and watch who says what. Why don't you just wait till the end of it? And more than likely, there'll be nothing to say because they've killed each other. Right? The argument fizzles and nothing is accomplished. He says, patience is better than pride. It's pride that gets us in that octagon. It was patience who would laugh and say, no, y'all all have a party. Have fun. I'll see you later. Thanks. I'm trying to quit. Verse 10, say not, here it is, where were the former days or why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. So he's on a roll. He's taking prisoners. Good old days. We don't need to say any more than just to state the fact that when we complain about now, and if you're alive now, you're here for such a time as this. Sorry. That's where God put you. And to complain about it, even nostalgically. And it's okay to be locked away from the past and have a fond memory of it. That's great. And it's good if something was good back then to preserve it till now. But to just complain about it as if you're one of those old Curmudgeons that can't ever say anything good. Your mom told you you'd better just be quiet. Um, it's foolish because it—it's a glorified dissatisfaction with what God has given us. You put me here, and I'm not happy. It's not a good testimony. So verses 11 and 12, and we're quickly moving toward this conclusion. It's more about wisdom, but then 13 gives us the turn, and there we find a surprise. So look at verse 11. He seems to uh, pick up the pace. The shots are being fired more quickly. Wisdom is good with an inheritance. So it's great if you've got a bunch of stuff, you'll need wisdom for it. An advantage, wisdom is, to those who see the sun, well, that's anybody, For the protection of wisdom, so it has a protective function here, is like the protection of money, which means that if you've got money you can survive a famine or or something, buy your way out of trouble. It's just a utilitarian notion here. And the advantage of knowledge that you know this stuff is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. So it's his way of summarizing, hey, this wisdom stuff will help you in this world you will never figure out. It'll help you organize, sift through, prioritize, differentiate between good, better, and best. Not even to talk about bad and worse. And then in verse 13, here it is. Because what he's done here is told us about wisdom that is better and then invites us to use the wisdom. But there's a trick here. Because he's going to tell us that it will only go so far. Consider the work of God, verse 13. That word consider means think. And here it is. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? When you complain about the crooked, you're forgetting who made it crooked, or how it came to be crooked? How that way back in a garden, you can have it all except this. Don't eat it. As a warning, the day that you eat of, you will die. Everything is cursed. It's no longer good, like I called it. It's bad, and I can't have anything to do with you at that point. I'll run you out and put a sword in the way. It's crooked. Life is full of it. There are things that can't be figured out. There are things that can't be fixed, no matter how wise one may be. Uh, We've talked about death. We've talked about mourning. We've talked about sorrow. We've talked about foolishness. Every one of those things, in our experience, where we live, in our lives, they look, they sound, they taste, they smell, they feel crooked. Anyone that wants to come in and say, My life is good, you want to just say, Keep talking. We'll hear it. We'll see it in your face. There's a lot of crooked stuff, even among those that seem to have it the best. And that's just a comparison, which is foolishness on its own. Look at verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. Here's his bottom line. So if you have a good day, thank the Lord for it. And be joyful. And in the day of adversity... Consider. Stop to think. Think what? God has made the one as well as the other. Why? So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So, God is not only the author of the day of prosperity and the author of the day of adversity, but He's engineered it in such a way as to withhold the future from our understanding having limited our grasp of it, even with the wisdom that he'll give. We're not meant to know such things, evidently. He knows he's not telling for him to know and for us to find out later. And this is because he knows best. I don't know about you, but this does not resemble the Jesus that I hear preached about often. I could see where people would go, wait just a minute, that's not the guy that I was told about. If I come to Jesus, all my kids will get straight A's, be healthy, marriage is great, I'll have all the money I need because God wants me to be happy. If you get your theological material from Walmart, I could see that conclusion. Get it from the Bible and from preachers who don't sell very well in Walmart. This is real stuff. This wise man is telling us there's, there's a wall, a veil that you just can't see past. And in place of that blindness, you're going to have to demonstrate some trust organized by wisdom in this man who knows what's good for you while you cannot. So we act like we can control our future. But this makes us as silly as we can possibly be to think we can control things that we don't even know. Why do we parade around like we've got this world by the tail when we have no idea what will happen when we wake up in the morning? But that, that's, that's the way we pretend, isn't it? Now, all we can do is gratefully accept as a gift from God's hand prosperity as well as adversity because he's made them both joy as well as sorrow death as well as life and and that that's where I want to conclude here because I think death is the big surprise of all for the child of God now back to the beginning where we're talking about the day of death and the day of birth the idea of birth is that it's full of potential There's nothing like being handed your child you've waited on for nine months And and think of all that lies ahead for this little one. That's about the time that it dawns on you. You're the one to bring it up. And God has put it in your arms. And you're scared to death that they'll grow up like you. Um, It's potential. It's kind of like driving a new car off the showroom floor. It's brand new. Zero on the odometer. How could the day of death be better? Well, because for the child of God, the day of death is all about fulfillment. As Paul tells us, those that are called are justified. Those who are justified are sanctified. What about those who are sanctified? They get glorified. That's not here. That's not under the sun. That's on the other side. And, and death is the transition Where you go from having basically nothing to having unlimited everything spiritually. Where you'll see yourself how he sees you rather than the other way around. There's really not even words for this. Anyone in scripture who got a glimpse of that was told not to write it down. That's when we sit in the cemetery and we say this is to be continued. Because we know they've entered their eternal reward. That's the difference, and, and death seems to be the mechanism. It's the thing we fear so greatly, but it's the thing that translates us from under the sun to with the Lord who's over the sun. Now, what is death, to borrow from funeral notes? A wage for sin. That's the reason why it ever came into this good earth that God made it was a warning they disobeyed I made you in my image to glorify me and display my glory but if you're not going to obey me I take that life back from you you're still in my image but our relationship is dead and later down the road I'll put together a plan to bring you life but it'll be on the back of my son because it can't be on your back because you can't do it And the the idea is best translated in in the New Testament. uh, Transference. The man who knew nothing of sin was made sin so that we who knew nothing of righteousness could be made righteous. The righteousness of His is imputed to us. He takes our sins on His shoulders. God crushes Him on the cross. And the beauty of it is the morning of the third day where we learn what God thinks of the whole deal. Would it be right for the sinless Son of God... To suffer death and stay dead? No. It'd be the height of cosmic injustice. So, as Peter describes it, the pangs of death were loosed. He rose again. He's alive forevermore. Death has no claim on him because death is just a wage for sin. He's not a sinner. So, he has power over it. In fact, he conquered it for good. And the truth is if you belong to Jesus, through faith and repentance his righteousness is yours and your sins are forgiven death has no claim on you either so what are you so worried about death is your ride to glory it has no power it has no sting the very thing that the devil has us in fear and trepidation about do what you can because when you die it's over serve me I'm more fun. Come to the house of mirth. I got a lot to show you. Read Pilgrim's Progress. It's all about pain, agony, and suffering that he endures with the grace of God until he gets to the place where he reaches the celestial shore. What is death? It's a shadow. We think of our life as a shadow, right? Are you supposed to be afraid? Psalm 23. The shadow of death in the valley. No. Because it's just a shadow. It's been defeated. Death has no claim on you. But boy it's a good teacher. If we'll learn from it. Jesus said to this distraught woman. At a funeral. This is the house of mourning right? I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then if we needed a fireworks finale for this installment, what shall we then say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? These are all, it's a list of bad days, days of adversity. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. No, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life. (laughs) Life could be just as instrumental in separating us from God as death. Nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So more than conquerors, folks. With wisdom in our pocket to conquer in spite of our adversity? No. Through our adversity. The adversity is for a purpose. We're going through it. But we can go through it and for an eternal reward. Father in heaven, thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, thank you for the house of mourning. Thank you for the end of a thing as well as its beginning. Thank you for the day of death after the day of birth. Lord, would you give us the wisdom when we're confused, when we're tired, when we're hurting, when we're exhausted to go looking for the truth and to find the glimpse of your face to help us keep going to know that whatever finds its way to us passed through the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit it arrives on our doorstep with much purpose Lord thank you for a good church for brothers and sisters to cry with, to laugh with, to hold each other accountable. Lord, would you answer a dangerous request? Lord, would you put us through whatever is necessary to make us useful while there's still time and for your glory? We ask all this in your precious name. Amen.